Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 20. I am a pastor's kid, so if you've ever wondered what's wrong with me, that's probably it. And as a pastor's kid growing up in my house, man, Easter was a big deal. It was like the Super Bowl, right? We would wake up on Easter morning, and me and my sisters, I got four sisters. Again, that might be what's wrong with me. But I got four sisters. We'd run to the kitchen table, and we'd have Easter baskets decorated for each of us with candy and some other fun little stuffed animals. Think anybody else do Easter baskets growing up? A couple people, yeah. And then we'd go, and we'd get ready for church, and we all had a nice new outfit to wear. I had a clip-on tie every year. Now, this is real. Okay, I did finally learn how to tie a tie, um, but I had my clip-on tie, and then we'd load up in the minivan, we'd all go to church, and man, church was just exciting that day, right? There was a lot more people than normal, and people singing louder, people smiling, even that one guy who never smiles, he's smiling on Easter. It's just a great, happy day, and then after church, we'd take an Easter family picture. Anybody going to get their family picture today? Got to do it. And then after that, we'll have our big Easter lunch that my mom would cook. Did anybody do a big Easter lunch today? Is it ready? Um, so we do that, and then, of course, we would crash with a big Easter nap, which I am already looking forward to today. No, but Easter was such a big deal for my family. You know, it wasn't really an optional. Like, when it was Easter Sunday, you were going to be there, and you were going to look good, and you were going to sing, and you were going to do all the things, and, and Easter was important to my family. Maybe that's how it was for you. Maybe Easter growing up, it was a big part of your family, and maybe even still today, you're here because you want to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. You're excited to be here. But on the other hand, maybe some of you are here today because you were kind of forced to be. <laughs> and maybe someone drug you here, or someone said to you, hey, if you want to eat Easter lunch, you better be at Easter service, right? And you didn't kind of have much of a say in the whole endeavor. Or maybe if you're being just completely honest with me this morning, you say, you know what, I'm not even sure if I believe in this whole resurrection thing. Like the story is nice and it feels good and it sounds good, but honestly, I'm just, I'm just not sure if it really happened and if it did happen, what it has to do with my life 2,000 years later. Well, if that's you this morning, I want you to know something. I want you to know that's okay. It's okay. I'm so glad that you're here because people have been wrestling for 2,000 years for what it means that the tomb was empty. You are not the only one to have doubts and to wrestle with this question. In fact, on the very first Easter morning, the very first people to discover the tomb did not believe it, they were confused. They were scared. The people who heard his teachings, who saw his miracles, who should have been the happiest people in the world on that first Easter Sunday, they weren't. In fact, I want to show you that this morning in a really short story about the first person who saw the resurrected Jesus. It comes from the Gospel of John. It's a documented account of that first Easter morning. So if you have a Bible, look with me at John chapter 11, John chapter 20, verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen. But let's take this piece by piece and see what it means. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So on that Sunday morning, the first person to find the empty tomb did not celebrate. 
She did not throw a big party or call a church service or sing, Christ the Lord is risen too. No, she didn't do that. She didn't have an Easter egg hunt. Do you know what she did? Did you see it? She wept. And that word weep doesn't mean like shed a few tears. No, she is boo-hooing. Mary is so upset about what's happened. Why? Why is Mary upset at the empty tomb? Why isn't she excited? Well, this is where it's important that we get a little bit of background information. Because this Mary that we read about in John 20 is none other than Mary Magdalene. And unfortunately, in the church, Mary Magdalene might be the most misunderstood and slandered character in the whole Bible. Uh, Contrary to what some have falsely claimed, Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute. Uh, Contrary to what a certain best-selling fiction book says, she was not married to Jesus. But what the Bible does tell us about Mary is much simpler than that and yet much more amazing than that. See, we first learn about Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 8. Those first three verses, it says this. It says, soon afterward, he, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, those are the twelve disciples. But get this, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So before Jesus, did you see that? Before Jesus, Mary was possessed by seven demons. I don't think I have to tell you that that is not good, okay? Like we read accounts in the New Testament of people being possessed by one demon and the pain and suffering they experience. But to have seven demons possessing you, that would have been total bondage, a complete nightmare. And we don't know how, we don't know why, we just know Mary was in a very tough situation. When we read of others in the New Testament who were possessed by demons, they were often ostracized from their family, from their community. They had no one who could help them. They had no hope of ever being healed, so they were just shunned. But one day, Mary met Jesus. Somewhere along the way, she had an encounter with this man that people had been talking about, a man who could heal the blind and cure all kinds of sicknesses, and Jesus cast the demons out of Mary. Man, can you imagine the freedom and relief that Mary felt on that day? As a result, she she began to follow Jesus. She joined up with the group of 12 disciples and, as we read, a few other women. And she becomes a part of this ragtag family. She travels around with Jesus, hearing the things he taught, seeing the miracles he performed. She's privy and on a front row seat to all these amazing things. And it's clear that Mary's life is bound up with Jesus. The verse in Luke 8 says that she actually supported his ministry with her own means. So she has gone all in with Jesus and his people and his mission until one day he's arrested, convicted, and brutally crucified. And imagine the grief that she felt Losing the person who gave her a whole new life, losing her sense of purpose and community, the person that she had ordered her whole life around. She gave up everything to follow him, and now he's gone. And the one thing that she feels she can do to go to the tomb and care for the body and care for the tomb, now she can't even do that because the body's gone. So she weeps. Let's keep reading in John 20, verses 12 through 13. 
And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So Mary looks into the tomb, and she sees two angels, and they say, Hey, why are you weeping? It's not because they didn't know. But it's clear they're trying to help her understand what's happening, but she's still not getting it. She says, hey, the body's gone, but let's keep going. Verses 14 and 15. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So now Mary, she turns around, and the very person that she's looking for is standing right there. And yet she doesn't know it's him. Which, remember, that might seem kind of strange, but she wasn't looking for a walking, talking person. She was looking for a dead, lifeless corpse. And Jesus asked her the same question. He says, why are you weeping? And then he asked this key question that I want you to think about. This key question, he says, whom are you seeking? Again, he's not because he doesn't know what she's doing, but he's trying to make a point. He's trying to take her deeper beyond the surface level of what's happening in the moment. He wants her to think about all that she's learned, all that she's experienced, all that she's seen. He's saying, Mary, what are you looking for? What is it that you really want? And I want to ask you the same question Whom are you seeking? You know, all of us are seeking something, whether we realize it or not. All the things we do in life, we do them to get something. Think about it. We work to make a living. We eat to satisfy our hunger. We go to school to get an education. But it goes deeper than that. Because we're not just seeking a paycheck or, or, or a meal or a diploma. All of us are chasing after something much bigger, whether it's wealth or success or happiness or a good family with good kids or a future retirement. And we may not even realize it, but what we do is we order our lives around that one thing and we find meaning and purpose. We try to in that one thing and we run after it without ever stopping to think why. When I was in college, I served at a small church in a rural town in West Tennessee. And it was a 45-minute drive from where I lived at school to the church each week. And I'll never forget one Sunday night, I was getting ready to drive back that night. And and one of the members of our church, he was an avid hunter, he told me, he said, Hey, man, be careful on your way home. Watch out for deer. Because this is the time of year when most deer collisions happen. Out of curiosity, I said, Why is that? And he said, well, this is when the female deer are in heat. And I wasn't thinking. I said, well, it's starting to cool down outside. I mean, surely, surely it's fine. That wasn't what he meant. He, he explained to me that this was breeding season. And because of that, the male deer are chasing the female deer. And what happens is... The bucks chase the does so intently that they do not think about their personal safety. They just run and run, and they don't even watch for cars. And I couldn't believe it, but it's true. I Google it. Deer don't have bad vision. Deer don't have bad hearing. Deer have bad desires. 
And as a result, this is true, uh, deer kill more people in America than any other animal. Did you know that? Because car collisions. So without pressing this example too much, we are similar to deer. We are all seeking something. And often we do this with reckless abandon. We don't stop to think why we do what we do. We don't stop to think about what it is we really want. We just run and run until one day, smack, we get hit. We have no idea what happened. Our life falls apart and we're crying by an empty tomb. So again, I want to challenge you to stop and think, what are you seeking? What are you chasing after in your life? What is it that you really want and desire deep down? Mary thought she was seeking Jesus. She thought she was looking for this amazing teacher and healer and person that had transformed her life, but she did not fully understand who Jesus was yet. That was all about to change. Look what happens in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. So this is the moment where everything clicks into place. The light bulb goes on, the, the angels, the empty tomb, the cross, all the things that Jesus said. It's all starting to make sense, right? Have you ever experienced one of these moments? Where all the pieces of the puzzle kind of come together and you're like, aha, this is what happened. Mary's beginning to understand and all it takes is one word. Did you notice that? Jesus had previously been talking to her, but it's not until he says this one word that changes everything. It's a word that she must have heard Jesus say many times. It's a word of friendship and connection. The one word is her name. Man, that's important. Because how, how, how do you think people usually said the name Mary when she was possessed by seven demons? Oh, Mary. Oh, here comes Mary. It was a name of pity, of disgust. Even when she followed Jesus, think about how people viewed her then. You're throwing away everything to follow a rabbi? You're a woman. You can't follow a rabbi. But when Jesus said her name, it was unlike any way else she'd ever heard it. It was a name of hope and love and purpose. To be known by name, by a risen Savior, what could be better? And here's the good news. Jesus knows your name too. You are not a number in God's system. You are not just another person. You are unique to God because he personally created you and chose you to be on this earth at this time. David prayed in Psalm 139. He said, God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. That is true for you. So God knows you. And as exciting as that thought can be, it can also be a little scary. Because there's parts of me I don't want God to know. I have done some things in my life. I still do things that are wrong, things that I know God does not approve of. I sin against him. But the Bible says that despite our sin, despite our failures, God does not look on us with disappointment. He doesn't see us as a combination of all the things we've done right and wrong. He doesn't look down on us with anger and disgust. No, it says he loves us. Despite all we've done against him, he still loves us. In fact, God loves us so much that he sent his own son to die for you. 
Jesus was nailed to a cross, taking our sin in our place so that we could be forgiven. He didn't die for a number or for an anonymous group. He died for you personally. Just as he called to Mary on that day, he calls to each of us. He's saying your name. He wants to have a relationship with you. Several chapters earlier in John's gospel, Jesus describes himself as a good shepherd. He says, I know my people and my people know me. I lay down my life for my sheep and I call them each by name. Jesus wants us to follow him. He wants us to seek after him and him alone as we run and seek and chase and run and seek and chase after all these other things. Jesus says, no, 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 come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Jesus wants to give us what we really need so we can stop seeking and start resting. But here's the deal. We have to turn to him. Notice that's what Mary did. She hears her name and she turns and goes to Jesus. She says, Rabbani. That was a word that meant teacher, a word that she often probably called Jesus. It would have been familiar in this Jewish culture. And then here's what Jesus tells her in verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary is so amazed by Jesus being alive that she just runs and grabs him. (laughs) And Jesus says, hey, don't don't cling to me. And people get kind of misunderstand, people misunderstand this verse and wonder, what does this mean? Why did he say don't touch him? Well, Jesus isn't angry. He's not afraid of physical touch. We know later he asked Thomas to touch his scars. But what he's saying is, hey, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, I'm going to ascend to the Father, but I'm not leaving just yet. So don't hold on to me because there's something I need you to do. And he tells Mary that he wants her to deliver a message to his disciples. And Mary becomes the very first person to ever declare the Easter message that Jesus is alive. And this is a big deal because we've already established Mary was not the most popular girl around. She had a rough past. And this is also a big deal because she's a woman. In this time and culture, women were not valued as highly as men. They were viewed as less than. They were not respected. Yet despite all of that, Jesus says, no, I want you to be the first. This is also one of the reasons we believe this story can't be made up. Because if the disciples were making this story up, they would have never picked Mary to be the first to see Jesus. Yet in each gospel, it's always the women who see Jesus first. So Mary, she gets this important mission, and here's what she does. The last verse, verse 18, says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary goes and tells She says, I have seen the Lord, guys. He's alive. And that's what Christians have been doing now for 2,000 years. That's really what Christianity is. Christianity is, is not a system of rules and regulations. This is what makes it different from every other religion in the world. Christianity is an announcement. It's a declaration of good news. Christianity is not about what you do or don't do. But Christianity is about what's been done. And just like Mary, those of us who know Jesus, we have a purpose. 
We have a calling. It's to go and tell. It's to announce to the world to say, I have seen the Lord. He is alive. And to everyone who hears that message, they must answer this question. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? This is what all of the Bible, all of human history is pushing us to ask. Who is this? Born of a virgin, laid in a manger, yet worshipped by angels and wise men. Who is this? Lived a perfect life, never sinned, never messed up even once. Who is this? Walked on water, raised the dead, cast out demons. Who is this? Died on a cross, taking our place as a criminal, yet bearing our sins so we wouldn't have to. Who is this? Rising from the dead on the third day, walking out of a sealed tomb, defeating death. Who is this? Everyone must answer that question, including you. Who is this? And some will reject him and say, oh, he, he was just a good man. He, he was just another one of those famous religious figures, Buddha, Muhammad. But how many religious figures have missing bodies that have never been found? There's only one. Who is this? And there's only one proper response to that question. There's only one way we should respond to this news, and I want to illustrate it with just an example. One of the best parts of my day is coming home from work. Uh, my kids are still young enough where they are excited to see me. <laughs> my youngest son, he's 13 months old, and when I walk in the door, he's usually chewing on something like the remote. And so I'll say his name. I'll say, hey, Ben. And he'll realize it's me, and he'll, he'll turn, and he'll look, and, and he'll start walking towards me. And he's still figuring out how to use his legs, so he's pretty wobbly, and sometimes he falls down. But I move towards him, and I, I get right in front of him, and he just does this. He raises up his arms to me, and I, I pick him up, and I hold him. That is the way we respond to Jesus and to the question, who is this? It's to hear your name, to turn, and to go to Jesus. And you may wobble, and you may fall, and you may barely make it. But if you will simply lift up your arms to him, he will pick you up, and he will save you. Who is this Jesus? He's Lord, he's Savior, and he's alive. What do you say? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.